Chapter 18, Part 11 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 18 The Kingship in France, Part 11. Assuredly there was enough in such and so free an exercise of mind, in such a rich abundance of thoughts and sentiments, in such a religious, political, and domestic life, to occupy and satisfy a soul full of energy and power. But as has already been said, an idea cherished with a lasting and supreme passion, the idea of the crusade, took entire possession of Saint-Louis. For seven years after his return from the East, from 1254 to 1261, he appeared to think no more of it, and there is nothing to show that he spoke of it even to his most intimate confidants. But in spite of apparent tranquillity, he lived so far in a ferment of imagination and a continual fever, resembling in that respect, though the end aimed at was different, those great men, ambitious warriors or politicians, of natures forever at boiling point, for whom nothing is sufficient, and who are constantly fostering, beyond the ordinary course of events, some vast and strange desire, the accomplishment of which becomes for them a fixed idea and an insatiable passion. As Alexander and Napoleon were incessantly forming some new design, or to speak more correctly, some new dream of conquest and dominion, in the same way St. Louis, in his pious armor, never ceased to aspire to a re-entry of Jerusalem, to the deliverance of the Holy Sepulchre, and the victory of Christianity over Mohammedism in the East, always flattering himself that some favorable circumstance would recall him to his interrupted work. It has already been told, at the termination in the preceding chapter, of the Crusader's history, how he had reason to suppose, in 1261, that circumstances were responding to his desire, how he first of all prepared, noiselessly and patiently, for his second crusade, how, after seven years' labor, less and less concealed as days went on, he proclaimed his purpose, and swore to accomplish it in the following year, and how at last, in the month of March, 1270, against the will of France, of the Pope, and even of the majority of his comrades, he actually set out, to go and die, on the 25th of the following August, before Tunis, without having dealt the Mussulmans of the East even the shadow of an effectual blow, having no strength to do more than utter, from time to time, as he raised himself on his bed, the cry of, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and at the last moment, as he lay in sackcloth and ashes, pronouncing merely these parting words, Father, after the example of our divine Master, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Even the crusader was extinct in St. Louis, and only the Christian remained. The world has seen upon the throne greater captains, more profound politicians, vaster and more brilliant intellects, princes who have exercised, beyond their own lifetime, a more powerful and a more lasting influence than St. Louis, but it has never seen a rarer king, never a man who could possess, as he did, sovereign power without contracting the passions and vices natural to it, and who in this respect displayed in his government human virtues exalted to the height of Christian. For all his moral sympathy, and superior as he was to his age, St. Louis, nevertheless, shared and even helped to prolong two of its greatest mistakes. As a Christian he misconceived the rights of conscience in respect of religion, and as a king he brought upon his people deplorable evils and perils for the sake of a fruitless enterprise. 
war against religious liberty was, for a long course of ages, the crime of Christian communities and the source of the most cruel evils, as well as of the most formidable irreligious reactions the world has had to undergo. The thirteenth century was the culminating period of this fatal notion, and the sanction of it conferred by civil legislation as well as ecclesiastical teaching. St. Louis joined, so far, with sincere conviction, the general and ruling idea of his age, and the jumbled code which bears the name of Etablissement de St. Louis, and in which are collected many ordinances anterior or posterior to his reign, formally condemns heretics to death, and bids the civil judges to see to the execution, in this respect, of the bishop's sentences. In 1255 St. Louis himself demanded of Pope Alexander IV leave for the Dominicans and Franciscans to exercise, throughout the whole kingdom, the Inquisition already established, on account of the Albigensians, in the old domain of the Counts of Toulouse. The bishops, it is true, were to be consulted before condemnation could be pronounced by the inquisitors against a heretic, but that was a mark of respect for the episcopate and for the rights of the Gallican Church, rather than a guarantee for liberty of conscience, and such was St. Louis's feeling upon this subject, that liberty, or rather the most limited justice, was less to be expected from the kingship than from the episcopate. St. Louis's extreme severity towards what he called the knavish oath, Belin Sormant, that is, blasphemy, an offence for which there is no definition save what is contained in the bare name of it, is perhaps the most striking indication of the state of men's minds, and especially of the king's, in this respect. Every blasphemer was to receive on his mouth the imprint of a red-hot iron. One day the king had a burgher of Paris branded in this way, and violent murmurs were raised in the capital and came to the king's ears. He responded by declaring that he wished a like brand might mark his lips, and that he might bear the shame of it all his life, if only the vice of blasphemy might disappear from his kingdom. Some time afterwards, having had a work of great public utility executed, he received on that occasion, from the landlords of Paris, numerous expressions of gratitude. I expect, said he, a greater recompense from the Lord for the curses brought upon me by that brand inflicted upon blasphemers, than for the blessings I get because of this act of general utility. Of all human errors the most in vogue are the most dangerous, for they are just those from which the most superior minds have the greatest difficulty in preserving themselves. It is impossible to see, without horror, into what aberrations of reason and of moral sense men otherwise most enlightened and virtuous may be led away by the predominant ideas of their age. And the horror becomes still greater when a discovery is made of the iniquities, sufferings, and calamities, public and private, consequent upon the admission of such aberrations amongst the choice spirits of the period. In the matter of religious liberty, St. Louis is a striking example of the vagaries which may be fallen into, under the sway of public feeling, by the most equitable minds and the most scrupulous consequences. A solemn warning, in times of great intellectual and popular ferment, for those men whose hearts are set on independence in their thoughts as well as in their conduct, and whose only object is justice and truth. As for the Crusades, the situation of Louis with respect to them was quite different, and his responsibility far more personal. The Crusades had certainly, in their origin, been the spontaneous and universal impulse of Christian Europe, towards an object lofty, disinterested, and worthy of the devotion of men. And St. Louis was, without any doubt, the most lofty, disinterested, and heroic representative of this grand Christian movement. But towards the middle of the thirteenth century the moral complexion of the Crusades had already undergone great alteration. 
the salutary effect they were to have exercised for the advancement of European civilization still loomed obscurely in the distance, whilst their evil results were already clearly manifesting themselves, and they had no longer that beauty lent by spontaneous and general feeling which had been their strength and their apology. Weariness, no doubt, and common sense, had so far as this matter was concerned, done their work amongst all classes of the feudal community. As Sire de Joinville, so also had many knights, honest burghers, and simple country folks recognized the flaws in the enterprise, and felt no more belief in its success. It is the glory of St. Louis that he was, in the thirteenth century, the faithful and virtuous representative of the crusade, such as it was when it sprang from the womb of united Christendom, and when Godfrey de Bouillon was its leader at the end of the eleventh. It was the misdemeanor of St. Louis, and a great error in his judgment, that he prolonged by his blindly prejudiced obstinacy a movement which was more and more inopportune and illegitimate, for it was becoming day by day more factitious and more inane. In the long line of kings of France, called most Christian kings, only two, Charlemagne and Louis the Ninth, have received the still more august title of saint. As for Charlemagne, we must not be too exacting in the way of proofs of his legal right to that title in the Catholic Church. He was canonized, in 1165 or 1166, only by the antipope Pascal III, through the influence of Frederick Barbarossa, and since that time the canonization of Charlemagne has never been officially allowed and declared by any popes recognized as legitimate. They tolerated and tacitly admitted it, on account, no doubt, of the services rendered by Charlemagne to the papacy. But Charlemagne had ardent and influential admirers outside the pale of popes and emperors. He was the great man and the popular hero of the Germanic race in Western Europe. His saintship was welcomed with acclamation in a great part of Germany, where it had always been religiously kept up. From the earliest date of the University of Paris, he had been the patron there of all students of the German race. In France, nevertheless, his position as saint was still obscure and doubtful, when Louis the Ninth, towards the end of the fifteenth century, by some motive now difficult to unravel, but probably in order to take from his enemy, Charles the Rash, Duke of Burgundy, who was in possession of the fairest province of Charlemagne's empire, the exclusive privilege of so great a memory, ordained that there should be rendered to the illustrious emperor the honors due to the saints, and he appointed the twenty-eighth of January for his feast-day, with a threat of the penalty of death against all who should refuse conformity with the order. Neither the command nor the threat of Louis the Ninth had any great effect. It does not appear that, in the Church of France, the saintship of Charlemagne was any the more generally admitted and kept up, but the University of Paris faithfully maintained its traditions, and some two centuries after Louis the Ninth, in 1661, without expressly giving to Charlemagne the title of saint, it loudly proclaimed him its patron, and made his feast-day an annual and solemn institution, which, in spite of some hesitation on the part of the Parliament of Paris, and in spite of the revelations of our time, still exists as the grand feast-day throughout the area of our classical studies. The University of France repaid Charlemagne for the services she had received from him. She protected his saintship as he had protected her schools and her scholars. The saintship of Louis the Ninth was not the object of such doubt, and had no such need of learned and determined protectors. Claimed as it was on the very morrow of his death, not only by his son Philip the Third, called the Bold, and by the barons and prelates of the kingdom, but also by the public voice of France and of Europe, it at once became the object of investigations and deliberations on the part of the Holy See. 
For twenty-four years new popes, filling in rapid succession the chair of St. Peter, Gregory X, Innocent V, John XXI, Nicholas III, Martin IV, Honorius IV, Nicholas IV, St. Celestine V, and Boniface VIII, prosecuted the customary inquiries touching the faith and life, the virtues and miracles of the late king, and it was Boniface III, the pope destined to carry on against Philip the Handsome, grandson of St. Louis, the most violent of struggles, who declared on the 11th of August, 1297, the canonization of the most Christian amongst the kings of France, and one of the truest Christians, king or simple, in France and in Europe. St. Louis was succeeded by his son, Philip III, a prince, no doubt, of some personal valour, since he has retained in history the nickname of the Bold, but not otherwise beyond mediocrity. His reign had an unfortunate beginning. After having passed several months before Tunis, in slack and unsuccessful continuation of his father's crusade, he gave it up, and re-embarked in November 1270, with the remnants of an army anxious to quit that accursed land, wrote one of the crusaders, where we languish rather than live, exposed to torments of dust, fury of winds, corruption of atmosphere, and putrefaction of corpses. A tempest caught the fleet on the coast of Sicily, and Philip lost by it several vessels, four or five thousand men, and all the money he had received from the Mussulmans of Tunis as the price of his departure. Whilst passing through Italy at Cosenza, his wife, Isabel of Aragon, six months gone with child, fell from her horse, was delivered of a child which lived barely a few hours, and died herself a day or two afterwards, leaving her husband almost as sick as sad. He at last arrived at Paris on the 21st of May, 1271, bringing back with him five royal beers, that of his father, that of his brother, John Tristan, Count of Nevers, that of his brother-in-law, Theobald, King of Navarre, that of his wife, and that of his son. The day after his arrival he conducted them all in state to the Abbey of Saint-Denis, and was crowned at Rheims, not until the 30th of August following. His reign, which lasted fifteen years, was a period of neither repose nor glory. He engaged in war several times over in southern France and in the north of Spain, in 1272 against Roger Bernard, Count of Foy, and in 1285 against Don Pedro III, King of Aragon, attempting conquests and gaining victories, but becoming easily disgusted with his enterprises and gaining no result of importance or durability. Without his taking himself any official or active part in the matter, the name and credit of France were more than once compromised in the affairs of Italy through the continual wars and intrigues of his uncle Charles of Anjou, King of Sicily, who was just as ambitious, just as turbulent, and just as tyrannical as his brother Saint-Louis was scrupulous, temperate, and just. It was in the reign of Philip the Bold that there took place in Sicily, on the 30th of March, 1282, that notorious massacre of the French which is known by the name of Sicilian Vespers, which was provoked by the unbridled excesses of Charles of Anjou's comrades, and through which many noble French families had to suffer cruelly. At the same time, the celebrated Italian Admiral Roger de Loria inflicted by sea on the French party in Italy, the provincial navy, and the army of Philip the Bold, who was engaged upon incursions into Spain, considerable reverses and losses. At the same period the foundations were being laid in Germany and in the north of Italy, in the person of Rudolf of Habsburg, elected emperor, of the greatness reached by the House of Austria, which was destined to be so formidable a rival to France. The government of Philip III showed hardly more ability at home than in Europe, 
not that the king was himself violent, tyrannical, greedy of power or money, and unpopular. He was, on the contrary, honorable, moderate in respect of his personal claims, simple in his manners, sincerely pious and gentle towards the humble. But he was at the same time weak, credulous, very illiterate, say the chroniclers, and without penetration, foresight, or intelligent and determined will. He fell under the influence of an inferior servant of his house, Peter de la Brosse, who had been surgeon and barber first of all to St. Louis, and then to Philip III, who made him before long his chancellor and familiar counsellor. Being, though a skilful and active intriguer, entirely concerned with his own personal fortunes and those of his family, this barber mushroom was soon a mark for the jealousy and the attacks of the great lords of the court. And he joined issue with them, and even with the young queen, Maria of Brabant, the second wife of Philip III of poisoning and peculation were raised against him, and in 1276 he was hanged at Paris on the thieves' gibbet, in the presence of the Dukes of Burgundy and Brabant, the Count of Artois, and many other personages of note, who took pleasure in witnessing his execution. His condemnation, the cause of which remained unknown to the people, says the chronicler William of Nongis, was a great source of astonishment and grumbling, Peter de la Brosse was one of the first examples in French history of those favorites who did not understand that, if the scandal caused by their elevation were not to entail their ruin, it was incumbent upon them to be great men. End of chapter 18, part 11